0: So, um, I'd like to um, kind of talk about some of the themes, and the ideas behind the theme of honesty and truth, and just start by saying that talking first about um, the purpose and value of mindfulness practice and Buddhism in recovery briefly, this is kind of something that's kind of an ongoing point but um, when I go to treatment centers um, I, think I talked about this on Saturday as well that, that um, I try to make it really simple for people why we're doing this for one to relax we all need that you now we really need simply, particularly in our contemporary lifestyle, closing your eyes is really helpful because it means you can't be looking at a screen. <laughs> and we spend so much time looking at a screen. I remember being on a retreat almost 20 years ago and having one of my teachers say, try to limit the amount of time you spend looking at a screen every day. And now, Since we have portable screens that are so full of juicy, fun stuff from Angry Birds to ESPN. I mean, you know, you've got it all. Why would you ever want to look at anything other than your screen? You know, um, so closing your eyes every day for a little while. That's practically all you have to do. You know, you're already ahead of the game. Taking time to relax, everybody needs it. Addicts need it extra. I, I don't. I don't know if it's true that addicts are different from other people, but if we are, one of the ways we're different is that we get a little bit more stressed, or we we're, we have a shorter trigger. Um, and I, I just want to say that. Uh, uh, Step back and say, when I say addict, I, I try to find general terms, and I'm talking about you. <laughs> Whatever your problem is, if you didn't, I presume you didn't walk in here by accident thinking it was the, you know, chanting, loving kindness uh, class. So, um, you know, I think I'm talking to alcoholics, drug addicts, uh, sex addicts, food addicts. Uh, Al-Anon members, CODA, uh, gambling, uh, you know, uh, ACAs, adult children of alcoholics. I've gone to many of those programs. I identify as many of those things. I'm not going to, well, whatever. I'm not trying to cover anything up, but you know, there you are. And uh, And I know there's differences. I don't pretend that there aren't differences, but I think there are some core aspects that are shared, and again, that the steps address and that Buddhism addresses. Uh, At times, there will be things you might want to say, well, wait, you know, I'm in this program, and can you talk about how that relates to that? And I will try to relate to specifics. But most of the time, I just use a term like addicts, or sometimes I talk about alcoholics addicts. So, relaxing every day. We need it. Do it. You know, take the time for yourself. When I first took a meditation class over 30 years ago, it wasn't even Buddhism, but it, they, they said, if you can't find 20 minutes a day for yourself every day, then maybe you should look at your lifestyle, you know, and ask yourself, is there something out of balance? And I think that's a, that was a really good challenge for me. And I think that most of us can find some time, uh, most days. And when we can't, don't use that as another way to beat yourself up. That's just not helpful. Of course, there are days you're going to miss. That's fine. If you stay in touch with yourself, though, you will know, you will remember, oh, wow, I need to meditate. If you wait until you feel like meditating, you'll probably be waiting a long time. (laughs) So don't wait until you feel like meditating, just do it. So, relaxing. And the second thing that mindfulness does that other forms of meditation don't necessarily do, it's, you know, I'm cheering for my brand, you know, not mine, but the one that I'm identified with, is seeing our own minds, watching our habitual reactions. When those thoughts come up, someone was talking to me during the break about cognitive therapy, very similar, that noticing, wow, this is, this is crazy thinking, you know. Why am I obsessing about this? You know, I, I have certain obsessions. Some of them are incredibly trivial, and, just, and there they are. But I no, at least I notice them. You know, I can't always turn them off. But I know that about two weeks before I'm going to take a trip, I start packing my suitcase, you know. And it's just what I do, you know. And I'm in the shower and I'm like, oh, should I take those shoes? or the? Which pants? How many pairs of pants? You know, why? I don't know. Fear, presumably. But, you know, I don't get too much into analyzing it. But starting to notice things, starting to notice our own minds is really, really important in terms of recovery. Because those negative thoughts that start with, like, oh, I don't need to go to meetings or I don't need to meditate or I really. Uh, It's okay if I hang out with the cocaine dealer because he's really a cool guy or whatever. You know, we can kind of catch ourselves if we we watch. And further, um, (coughs) watching our emotions so that at least some of the time we can intervene, be our own interventionist between acting out Acting unskillfully, so that, uh, so to me, just relaxing and being mindful of our thoughts and feelings are core tools for recovery. Without them, we are at the mercy of uh, all these energies that will tend towards relapse. It's for me. It's part. It's a huge part of the daily care uh, that I do for myself. So, that's why I'm here. Um, So, uh, honesty as a theme. As I said at the beginning of the evening, um, this is to me the starting point of recovery is honesty. It was my unwillingness to see the truth about my condition, my behavior, that kept me from stopping drinking and using. But that was only the first thing that I had to address. Uh, and this is, in some ways, step one admitted we we're powerless over whatever, that our lives become unmanageable. Well, I wasn't admitting either of those things. And so I was being dishonest with myself and with others. And the thing about recovery and the reason why. At 26 years sober, I'm still talking about it and still working at it. Is that that first step and that first admission and that first honesty uh, is only part of the process? That oh, uh, I can't. I, I can't. I don't think we can underestimate the importance of that because, I, to me. That initial transformation was the biggest transformation that's ever happened in my life. But if it hadn't been followed by an ongoing process, it would have simply fizzled away. And it would have been not that useful or meaningful. But because it was followed by uh, working the rest of the steps and working uh, step four, the inventory, and further trying to become a person... Uh, who was honest, uh, that allowed uh, the process to continue to unfold. So wherever you are in your recovery process, I think being honest about where you are <laughs> is vital, and it's not always easy. you know Just uh, as I said before, being honest about the fact, okay, how many months have I been in this depression? I talk to a therapist once a month. And it, and that ter- has turned out to be a really good method for me because oftentimes I talk to her and it's like there, a lot has happened. And like two weeks ago, I might have thought, oh my God, this is like, things are really bad, but I'm okay now. And that's really great because I see, oh, you know, there's all these ups and downs. But when it's like... Four or five months like every month I'm like yeah for about two weeks of this last month I was depressed you know I have to be honest with myself I'm not managing this you know I need help so uh, to me being able to uh, in an ongoing way admit my powerlessness that's step one admit my need for help admit my failings apologizing is one of the most important practices I've learned. Um, when I, There are certain things that I find that I have had to stop apologizing for because I fail so often at them that the people that I apologize to don't take me seriously anymore. I apologize to my daughter for my sarcasm and she doesn't believe me anymore, so I've had to stop that. Uh, which is painful, but you know that's that's something I haven't been able to manage. You know. um, so, uh, in this uh, workbook that I'm working on, I have a series of exercises um, that are meant to help people kind of figure out. Whether they need to uh, deal with a, an addiction, whether they have an addiction, or whether they have a problem that should be dealt with, and uh, so I have very simple exercises. I mean, I'm just saying, kind of saying, uh, you know, ask yourself this question. You know? And one of them, well, one of them is uh, a, a cost-benefit analysis. Uh, make a list of all the things that all the benefits that you get from your behavior and and this of course doesn't just apply to addiction so it's something we can do at different times in our in our recovery like is this relationship working is this job working i mean you know is, is this behavior working so what are the benefits what are the uh, negative what are the harms that are coming from it actually i'm going to pull that out because so I suggest that you make three columns. And, oh, I'll just read it. In the first column, write down the benefits you get from your addictive behaviors. So but I would expand that out to more things, if anything that you want to sort of address. Whether emotional, social, or anything else. In the second column, write the costs: social, emotional, professional, physical, economic, etc. Here you need to be what AA calls a rigorously honest. Maybe you don't have cirrhosis of the liver, but what about a cough from smoking cigarettes or pot, hangovers, fights with your partner? What could you have done with all the money you've spent? In the third column, write down potential benefits from dropping your addiction. Again, social, physical, financial. If you don't see that you might benefit from dealing with your behavior, then maybe you don't want or need to read this book, I said. <laughs> But this is, of course, uh, just trying to be honest. Just what is true? So often, uh, you know, a challenge. Because how do we know what's true? You know, that's, um, and who's, who's deciding that? The same person who doesn't know what's true. <laughs> the same person who's doing the behavior is trying to decide whether the behavior is good or not. Uh, so it's, it's tricky. It's the same thing, problem with meditation. Who's in there meditating? You, you know? Uh, the, there's no Dharma teacher in there saying, no, 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 stop that. No, do this. You know, no, you can do anything you want sitting there with your eyes closed. You know, you can watch pornographic movies if that's what entertains you. you know, nobody can stop you. Um, in fact, I've, I've done that on retreats sometimes. Just to, you know? <laughs> Just like you run out of things to space out about. (laughs) So, of course, this is always the challenge. And this is one of the reasons why we have teachers. This is one of the reasons why we have books, Dharma teachings, things to, uh, external things to guide us, sponsors, you know, There's a famous teaching, the Kalama Sutta, in which the, the, uh, this group of people, this community that the Buddha was visiting, said, you know, all these gurus come through and say that their teaching is the one. And after a while, we get like, who are we supposed to believe? And the Buddha goes down this great list. Don't believe it because somebody says it, because your teacher says it. Don't believe it because you read it in a book. Don't believe it because it's a tradition or the elders say it's the right thing to do. And don't even do it, believe it, just because it's logical or because it feels good to you. Don't follow something for those reasons. Try it and see what the results are. So it's very much a, a practical approach. The only way you know that you've made the right decision is you do it and see what happens. This is life. And it's very practical, the Buddha. You know, he doesn't sort of set up these, uh, uh, put these demands on us of, you know, you have to believe something, you have to believe in reincarnation, you have to believe in him. Of course, this means that we're going to make mistakes. But that's life, right? How do we learn? That's why traditionally, up until the last couple generations, Old people were really respected. I don't know if you heard about that. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know now we know that old people are just useless and should be pushed away and stuck into retirement homes. and We shouldn't listen to them because they don't know how to operate their cell phones and, and uh, you know, they're not on Facebook. You know. uh, but there was a time when old people were the people that everyone went to because it was assumed that they'd been through a lot and made a lot of mistakes and figured out what worked and what didn't. It's so interesting, of course, uh, those, of, some of you I'm sure are parents and have been through having a teenager. I, I became a parent at an older age at 48, so here I am in my 60s and I have a 13 year old. But it's so interesting seeing, and I, I t- can totally relate to where she's coming from, this view that a young person gets they've done stuff and they 've seen stuff done, and they feel like they understand it all now, and they can it's kind of like yeah, I know how everything works now and and then when they watch adults and adults expect them to do well no you should do this oh no I don't need to do that you know that's you know they they uh, they really think that older people are silly and this is kind of what the having a youth culture uh, kind of be the um, the vanguard you know being the leaders uh, this is the risk that they think they know everything uh, because they're looking at things kind of theoretically Um, but it's really it's really interesting when when my daughter is faced with something really complicated like scrambling eggs you know (laughs) or cleaning up the kitchen or cleaning her room you know it's just the the the, some you you see all the things that are missed right or like how do I get to so-and-so's house that she's been to like 20 times but she doesn't know how to get there because she never had to drive a car and get herself there right if she thinks she knows where it is but anyway Um, I ramble as usual so I hope I'm not wasting all your time (coughs) People want answers. People come to religions for answers. People come to teachers for answers. And the thing about Buddhism is it doesn't give you answers. It gives you tools for finding your own answers, which are actually the only answers worth having. So. Ask yourself what's true and what seems to be seems like a good idea, try it, and then track it. This is actually part of one of the traditional ways of talking about one of the elements of mindfulness. This is actually comes out of the commentaries that in the Buddhist tradition there are the in the, particularly in the tradition that we practice here at Spirit Rock, it's called the Theravadan tradition, which the, means the Way of the Elders, and it's the oldest Buddhist tradition uh, that's that's still around, uh, it comes, it, it's much older than Zen or uh, Tibetan Buddhism, which came a thousand years after the Buddha died. Um, Theravadan Buddhism goes back virtually to the time of the Buddha, and What the Buddha taught at that time was preserved orally for a couple hundred years and then was written down on these leaves, uh, ola leaves. And um, eventually we came to call those things that were written down the Pali Canon. Pali is the language the Buddha used, P-A-L-I. It's not quite, it's like a dialect very similar to what he spoke apparently. Uh, You can get into history around Buddhism, but... Try not to get too deep, but just to say that there's this Pali Canon, which is like this is the basic Buddhist teachings. And then there are commentaries. And there is one great commentary called the Vasudhimagga, which means the path of purification, which was written around 500 CE, common era, by a monk in Sri Lanka named Buddhagosa. And the Vasudhimagga is this extensive vast commentary on the Pali Canon. And some of it uh, is better than some of it, <laughs> as far as I know. I've never read it, but I've heard a lot about it through my teachers. And I've read various pieces of it. And I know a bunch of different pieces of it. Um, so uh, so people who are really into like strictly Buddhism like they'll kind of well, oh, that's the that's the commentaries. So that's we don't not really going to believe that. Other people, a lot of contemporary Theravada Buddhism is actually based more on the commentaries than on the Pali Canon. So some people are interested in this. So I'll put it out there. So back to this idea that's in in the commentaries, which is that uh, Buddhaghosa says there are two elements to um, mindfulness. There's bare attention. And that's the thing that we usually associate with mindfulness. That's just just paying attention to what is happening moment by moment and without any uh, analysis or judgment, just watching it happen. And then there is a second component called clear comprehension. And clear comprehension has various definitions, but one of them is the idea that we pay attention to our motivation in our actions, and that when we do something, so we try to act with the best intentions and try to act on the Buddhist teachings as well as we understand them. And then after we act, we reflect back to see what the results of our actions were. So this is kind of getting this broader picture. And, and it's really important, clear comprehension is really important because you can be really mindful walking down the street or walking down the sidewalk. And then if you're just being, having bare attention, you go stepping, 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 and then the car hits you because you didn't notice, you'd step, walked into the street. So clear comprehension is like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm coming to the intersection. That's a light. It, it's a red light. It means stop. You know? Okay, because if you were just mindful, you would go, bright color. You know? And then just, yeah. You know. So... Um, so clear comprehension, and uh, keeping the bigger picture is always really important. Some people, sometimes people get very kind of locked into this narrow, kind of like, oh, well, I'm supposed to just pay attention to my breath. And it's like, well, that's, yeah, that's useful, but there's a lot more going on. And you know, if your mind wanders, it doesn't mean, oh, you're really messed up now. It just means, oh, your mind wandered. Can you notice that? Is there something you can learn from that? So what I'm talking about is, if you don't know, <laughs> it, I wouldn't be surprised if you're completely confused by now. What I'm trying to get at is how do we figure out what's true? If, you know, with this idea of you know, analyzing our actions, or analyzing our what, what do we need to do, Am I an addict? And one way to figure that out is stop doing what you're doing and see what happens. Right? Do things get better? Hmm, could be a clue. Right? Uh, and that would be kind of following the, the Buddhist teaching. Try it and see what happens. Not, oh, let me read a book about recovery and see if that sounds like something I want to be. You know, or read a book about Buddhism. Let me read about meditation. Oh, meditation sounds really interesting. Yeah, I bet that's really good. Close the book. You know, that's what called, they call them bedstand Buddhists. People who keep Buddhist books on their bedstand. You know, it's great. You know, you read it before bed, then you fall asleep. No, that's what we're trying to do is wake up. That's what Buddha means, awake. So we want to be awake, not asleep. So be more than a bedstead Buddhist. Although I am recommending in your homework for this week that you read some some uh, spiritual literature on an ongoing basis. That, that be part of your daily practice, your regular practice. In any case, um, there's a lot. People often ask me, "Is there one book about Buddhism I can read that will give me like all the lists and kind of the basic text?" My answer to that is not that I know of. <laughs> it's like saying, "Is there one book about Christianity?" Well, you could read the Bible. You know, but other than that, you know, what's Christianity? I mean, what's Buddhism? There are these huge, vast uh, things that, you know, they're a couple thousand years old and then all the other people that have written about them. So you, you want to make your study, if you're interested in Buddhism, you want to make that just an ongoing thing and start with some things that look Appealing, and I've just given you some authors rather than giving you specific books and then start to work your way in. And you can always look at the bibliography in a book and go, what's this guy recommending? Or that topic sounds really interesting. Okay, so. Uh, the uh, last thing I think I want to do here uh, is uh, talk about Again, specifically about step one and connect it to the starting point of, the, of Buddhism, which is the first noble truth, actually the first and second noble truth, let's say. So one way of viewing the beginning of the 12-step process is to see it as recognizing suffering and the cause of suffering. That I see, and this is coming out of denial. I see that not only is this not working, but that I'm I'm miserable. You know, that this sucks. You know, waking up with hangovers, or or being you know finding myself, uh, you know, eating the whole half-gallon of ice cream before bed. Um, the, all the just painful things that we wind up with, external and internal, they can be very simple, you know, they can be, it can be just a little... I remember one dear friend who's now uh, uh, works at, at Spirit Rock, Ten years ago, she just celebrated ten years, and she was a long-time Buddhist practitioner. She, I got an email from her. She said, "Once again, I um, had uh, under the influence of champagne, I revealed a secret that I wasn't supposed to reveal, and once again I wake up ashamed." And she hadn't been drunk in, in any, but she was just intoxicated enough that she did something really uncool and she realized this is not working and this is because of alcohol. It's not like all my problems are, al- are solved by stopping drinking but the way I see it and, and this is true for me too, all my problems w- didn't stop when I stopped drinking but I couldn't deal with any of my problems until I stopped drinking. Yeah. That was one of my problems but it was the kind of the uh, gateway problem. It was the one that was standing in the way of my dealing with all the other things. So until I removed that, I couldn't feel my emotions clearly. I couldn't be honest with myself about my behavior, all of that. So step one is admitting that I can't control things. The first noble truth in Buddhism is that there is some inevitable, part of it is that there are aspects of life that are inevitably painful. The Buddha says birth is painful. Have you ever been at a birth? It's, yeah. Aging is painful. Well, oh, growing up is painful. You know, um, Flannery O'Connor said, anybody who survived adolescence has all the experience they need to write a novel. You know. Aging is painful, sickness is painful, painful, death is painful. Those are just inevitables, and that to me is just like, you're powerless. So what are you going to do about that? Well, what Step 1 and the First Noble Truth are pointing to is, is a kind of what we call surrender, a spiritual surrender. In more pleasant terms, we can call it acceptance. Accepting the way things are. So the second Noble Truth, which is again tied into step one, is seeing that it's clinging and trying to make things the way you want them to be, that causes us suffering. So our addiction is an attempt to make ourselves feel the way we want to feel all the time. I always want to feel high. I always want to feel good. And what happens when you do that continuously is that you actually become physically and and certainly psychologically dependent upon something that stops working and probably stopped working a long time ago the way you wanted it to. You can't maintain the same state, physical, emotional state permanently because everything is impermanent. One of the core teachings of of Buddhism. So, you, so it's a losing proposition addiction, right? We know that already, but even you know, just the idea is a losing proposition. It can't work. When we recognize that there are a lot of things in life that we can't control, and that even by controlling them, things that We could have some influence over that that our attempts to control are actually making them more painful. So, for instance, let me think of a for instance, um, something simple. Um, Like it would be, it would seem like a, a reasonable thing for me to want everybody in this class to really Get a lot out of it, you know, I'm in the teacher. I'm coming here. I have a purpose. My goal is to, you know, really share something. But if that, if I have that as my goal, I'm going to suffer because I can't make you guys enjoy it. And don't, but we do that all the time, don't we? Try to make people feel something. I want you to feel this way. Well, that's a losing proposition. That's, and so when we can let go, if I can come in here and go, this is what I have to offer, and then you know, let go of the results, that's, that feels good because you know, I've, I've tried, I've done my best. And it's not that you know, surrender means, oh, well, I'm not going to bother to teach because they're not going to get what I want them to get anyway. Since I can't control what they're going to get, I'm not going to teach them. That's kind of an ego approach that um, a lot of us have fallen into at various times. Right? So uh, that kind of, okay, I'm going to do my best, and then I'm going to let go. I mean, th- this is, in the 12 steps, we talk about you know, making our best effort and then turning the results over to God. Well, at Spirit Rock, we don't. God's. we keep him outside. No, we don't let him in. So we turn the results over to karma here. You know. Same difference, as they say, which is one of those expressions I never understood. Same difference, what does that mean? I also have trouble with what goes around comes around. And what, I, I don't get that either. All I can think of is like a merry-go-round, but that doesn't seem like karma. Anyway. So, um, so part of this beginning and ongoing process is surrender but it's not a surrender that's based on I told you to kneel down and well surrender to me it's surrender when you see the truth when you see how things work you cease fighting as it says in the big book of alcoholics anonymous we ceased fighting when we cease fighting that's a moment of freedom that's called letting go So this is both the beginning of the path and the end of the path in a way. Probably not even in a way. It is the end of the path if you can really let go. Um, But it's a good starting point, surrender. So I'll kind of uh, offer you that as well to go along with this theme of desire uh, to the theme of surrender this week. Uh, To look at the places where you Um, are trying to control things and see if you can just for a moment let go and surrender without um, bailing out without letting apathy take over so I have a a a piece um, in one breath at a time which I'm kind of reprising in this in this book, uh, Practice of Recovery book, uh, Powerless, Not Helpless. A lot of people struggle with this word powerless. Well, I'm not powerless over alcohol. Blah, blah, blah. I'm not, I don't really care. <laughs> I mean, uh, and, and this happens with Buddhism a lot, and it happens with the 12 steps too, that a word will get in our way. And partly that's because um, a word is being used for a certain purpose and then if you start to try to use it in its full definition, if you say powerless, it means you have no power. So that means that alcohol just kind of soaks through my skin, you know, I don't know. Somebody just sticks a Big Mac in my mouth. Um, It's just coming at me somehow, you know. and in fact, uh, one researcher who I, I knew, the late Alan Marlat, did some crazy research. I wish he were around to defend himself, where he was trying to basically to prove that there wasn't uh, what they call in the big book of the phenomenon of craving, that because the the received wisdom in AA, and I think in a lot of 12-step programs, is that when you're addicted to something, you know, one drink triggers this compulsion to drink uh, to excess. And, and I certainly had that experience, but not every time I drank. But he had, he, this guy, was, he was at the University of Washington and he had a, uh, a research center, the Addictive Behaviors Research Center. And they had a bar in the basement <laughs> to do research. I know a lot of us would have been happy to help him out with that because uh, we did a lot of research ourselves and supposedly what it says in this book is that they told people that they weren't drinking alcohol but they put alcohol in their drinks and when they didn't know they were drinking alcohol they didn't binge and then they told them that they weren't giving them alcohol but no and then they told them that they were giving them alcohol But they weren't. And then they binged on what they were drinking on these non-alcoholic things. (laughs) Now, I would hate to go into an AA meeting and tell people about that research because you'd probably get strung up. And, you know, I have some problems with it. Nonetheless, um, you know, it's interesting that that here's somebody who's really trying to see, is this, is this really true? In other words, which is attacking the idea of powerlessness in some sense. And, but it's also true that many people who come into, pro, at least AA and other programs, I'm sure, find that there are times when they can drink and then there were times when they could and I didn't get drunk every time I had a drink. And when you read the big book, you're talking about people who did, apparently. You know, that, and, and so consequently, you know, and, and obviously this isn't information that's new to you guys, but just to, sum, you know, just to wrap this up, many of the people who get sober now are not nearly as hardcore as the people who are in the big book, which is great. But then the language of the big book can be alienating to those people because they think, well, that's not me. So they think, well, I'm not, maybe I'm not an alcoholic and maybe I can drink. Rather than thinking, oh, well, I'm lucky, <laughs> which is what I think. I'm lucky I wasn't like that. But as I said before, you know, m- maybe I can drink, but I won't be able to deal with the pro- my problems then and I still have problems you may have noticed I mentioned a few of them tonight <laughs> you know and I'm guessing you do too no matter how long you've been sober or clean or working your program so who cares you know the bottom line for me is I don't care even if I am an alcoholic I don't know clinically I might not be I don't really care because my life won't work like it does if I drink so f- my my the way I think of sobriety now I call it it's a spiritual state it has nothing to do with it almost doesn't it transcends the drugs and alcohol that there's a to me and this may sound very moralistic or whatever but to me there's a purity and a beauty and a sacredness that I treasure. Because it means that I'm doing my best to engage life with a clear mind day by day. The Buddhist precepts include the admonition to not use intoxicants. Many Western Buddhist teachers modify that to say to not use intoxicants to a level of heedlessness. So it's okay to have a glass of wine. I disagree with that, um, and my teacher Ajahn Amaro, uh, who's a Buddhist monk, uh, and has had a, had his own experiences with alcohol, says very clearly, the precept is don't drink. You know, and again, I think that's more than oh, yes, I can have some alcohol in my system, but it's really more about trying to get to some place of essence, some sacred essence. And even as I say that and I think, well, you know, I told you guys that I have been taking antidepressants, you could think, well, you're not really dealing with life. As well. And it's like, yeah, you could say that. So I'm doing my best to keep a clear, a clear mind and experience life uh, on some essential level. Uh, I have two minutes left, so I'm going to finish with one more thing, which is that when I was two years sober, I remember waking up one morning and thinking, every morning when I wake up, I can remember going to bed the night before. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what I'm talking about, that continuity of consciousness. Wisdom comes with continuity of awareness when I broke my consciousness which intoxication does on a regular basis I broke the ability of me to develop wisdom this is why being old doesn't mean you're wise (laughs) if you if you break your consciousness on regular on a regular basis and I actually have come to believe that intoxication is trauma is traumatic to our system and that most people in recovery are actually suffering from post-traumatic stress to some extent. And that's one of the reasons why it's so hard to stay clean and sober. That when you think about what drugs or alcohol or any kind of intoxication or extreme behavior does to your system, you know, it, I think it really is traumatic. That's a theory. I haven't seen it in any journals or anything, but uh, not that I read scientific journals. But so um, before we go, I'm, that's my. I don't know why that's the last thing I ended, up, but that's just where I arrived. Sorry. Um, see, I'm good at apologizing too, but I should never apologize for what I say when I'm teaching. Just try, just try to do better. So what I want to do is just a traditional closing. So just to sit up again and just get comfortable for a moment. And just closing your eyes for a moment so that we can at least leave um, with a moment of calm. the traditional Buddhist practice is to dedicate our practice and the benefit of our practice to others, to all beings, in fact. And this is the same thing that the 12th step suggests, that when we've had a spiritual awakening, we should carry the message to others. So, whether you intentionally carry the message or share what you've learned here tonight, or whether you simply help others by living more wisely and skillfully, realize that your practice is of benefit to other beings. Your practice is of benefit to yourself and to others, whether you like it or not. So we dedicate the merit of our practice together tonight to the awakening of all beings. May all beings be free from the suffering of addictive behaviors. May all beings be happy. Thank you. I hope uh, people will be able to come every week. If there's a week when you have to miss, please keep coming back the following week. And I should mention also, if you don't know, that the tradition here at Spirit Rock is that the teachers are not compensated by Spirit Rock, but by you, by your donations, what we call Donna, And the baskets outside are for you, you to practice Donna or generosity. So I appreciate. Uh, any and all that you are able to give. Thank you. And I will see you next week. Uh, also, oh, I should mention that Friday night, this week, I have my regular monthly Dharma and Recovery group. So uh, if you want to you can handle more, come back 7.30 to 9.30 Friday night. Thank you. All right.